Amen. If you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn with me to Hebrews chapter 13 as we continue this week our study in Hebrews. Lord willing, next week we'll turn to a uh, distinctly Christian uh, Christmas passage from Luke's Gospel. But tonight we are this morning, forgive me, I keep saying tonight because it's only been a couple of months since we switched to morning worship and preaching right here for years saying the other. So, um, old habits die hard, can't teach dog new tricks, all that stuff. If you have a Bible, we're in Hebrews 13. And uh, tonight what I want to do is... Uh, Pick up at verse 7, which we've already uh, read and and briefly discussed when we took 7 to 14. But but take verse 7 in conjunction with our next passage, verse 17. The reason being, both deal with the same subject, uh, but in different ways. And and so we want to look at these things. Uh, They deal with uh, leaders in the church and how we respond to them. You know, laugh with them. Not at them. Uh, this Christmas, of course, is, as we even heard in our, our Isaiah readings and we prayed about, we're celebrating the birth of a leader, the birth of a king, whom Isaiah said, of whom Isaiah said, the, the government of uh, God's people, the well-being of God's people would be on his shoulders. His name is Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. In one sense, he is, he is all that we need. He is all sufficient for the care of our souls. And in another way, one of the ways he cares for us is that he raises up among us leaders, church leaders, pastors and elders and, and others in various ways. Uh, and so we want to ask the question, as we think of these Elders, pastors who teach us the word of God and who watch over our souls, how should we treat our spiritual leaders? And standing here as one among you, I simply say we're on this subject because it's the next passage in God's word. So let's think about these things together. Let me invite you to hear the word from Hebrews chapter 13, verse verse 7 I think I'll pick up verse 8 because we'll comment at the end on that. And then also verse 17. This is the word of God. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. And now verse 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account let them do this with joy and not with groaning for that would be of no advantage to you this is the word of God let's look to him in prayer Our Father in heaven, grant that you would be our teacher this morning. Grant that uh, the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. 
Amen. Verse 7 refers to their past leaders. He's using past as they spoke in the past the word of God to you, and you're remembering them. Verse 17 speaks of their present leaders who are still alive among them. Let me highlight one big point from verse 7 and then a stream of things from verse 17 about leaders. From verse 7, we are exhorted to follow the good example of those who practice what they preach. Remember your leaders, those who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith, he says. They gave you a true message, the word of God, and they gave you a godly example. What Christian leaders profess to believe ought to be producing a transformation in their own lives. And they ought to practice what they preach. And I want to just highlight two examples, one negative and one positive, to maybe bring this home a little bit. Maybe uh, you've heard of the famous liberal theologian Paul Tillich who uh, taught at the University of Chicago and other places, including Europe, for many years. Some consider him one of the most influential or among the most influential theologians of the last century. But there wasn't a basic truth of Christianity he didn't deny. He was a heretic that way, though he was revered in academic circles. And when he died... And when they went into his office, they pulled out the drawers of his desk and they were stuffed with pornography. And his wife despised him. Their son at Harvard in a public address shared that his mother said if he, that is if Paul, her husband, is in heaven, she doesn't want to be there. She knew the kind of man that he was. She knew what he was really like. However revered he was, has been, or even is in the ivory halls uh, of academia. Now listen, he's not alone. Sham leaders, uh, false professors, uh, fallen pastors who may genuinely be believers, they don't dismantle or disprove Christianity. In fact, they prove what Jesus said when he told us that there would be false teachers among his people, there would be wolves in sheep clothing among his people, and that, and that genuine Christians are weak and frail and stumble and fall. And there are ways to deal with those things. Jesus warned, about, warned us about these things. They don't uh, undermine the truthfulness of Christianity. But we are not to follow in their footsteps. We are to follow godly leaders. We are to consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith, he says. Now, some of you will know that Dr. R.C. Sproul, a a famous in our own generation, theologian, pastor, and teacher, uh, went home to be with the Lord this week. Well, uh, Johnny Erickson Tata who some of you also may know of, um, wrote a reflection on his passing. And Johnny, you may know of as the one who's a quadriplegic, has been for many decades of her life uh, 
Now, after a diving accident when she was in her late teens, she's lived in a wheelchair uh, these many decades, and she writes of Dr. Sproul's influence on her, remembering his life, considering the outcome of it. And, uh, and, and let me quote you at some length what she says. Shortly after her accident, frustrated and depressed, early 70s, 1970s, she says, lying in bed paralyzed, I had a hard-hitting question, a hard-hitting question such as, God, who's behind all this suffering, you or the devil? Are you permitting this or ordaining it? Uh, I'm still a young Christian, and if you're so loving, Heavenly Father, why treat your children so, as she says, as she put it, meanly? You can, you can hear how she was wrestling. She suffered, suffered immensely, suffered great depression, suffered spiritual questions. All during the summer of 1971, she says, I would uh, park my wheelchair on the back porch of our Maryland farmhouse and listened to tapes a friend had given her of R.C. Sproul. He presented God's sovereignty as a truly comforting doctrine. She says it enlivened my spirit and elevated my faith to think that God had, quoting Isaiah 48, chosen me for the furnace of affliction. R.C. Sproul helped me see that God had chosen me to be a quadriplegic for good reasons. And not only good reasons, but noble, she says. Fast forward from that, from that back porch, she says, to Johnny and Friends, a California-based global ministry I began in order to reach for Christ people with disabilities and their families. I want other disabled people to see that when God chooses them, for the furnace of affliction. It's a, it's a calling. It's a privilege. I have R.C. Sproul to thank for that vision. Now, older age, she says, as they eventually became good friends, older age, she says, wasn't easy on Dr. Sproul. And he often felt like the, the, felt the bite of outwardly wasting away. But just as his insights once enlivened my spirit and elevated my faith in the furnace of affliction, those same treasured doctrines bolstered his spirit and faith. And his incredible sense of humor remained. The last time I saw him, we challenged one another to a wheelchair race. She says, our ministry at Johnny and Friends is all about conveying the kindness of God in a horribly broken world of deep suffering. Dr. Sproul helped lay a foundation for our work, not only in my personal life, but in our outreach. For when crib deaths occur, when spina bifida or autism or Alzheimer's encroaches, when people groan under the weight of significant disabilities and wonder if they've been forsaken, we can tell them God has not taken his hands off the wheel for a nanosecond. R.C. Sproul, even to his last day, she says, would hold forth that powerful line from, my, from Psalm 103. His kingdom rules over all. And so, she says, Sproul showed me way back in the beginning that of all the things I might waste here on earth, I must not waste my disability. Earth provides me one and a only chance to give Jesus a sacrifice of praise, demonstrating to the heavenly hosts 
that he is supremely worthy of my loyalty and love. And once I get to heaven, she says, R.C. and I will have an eternity to sing praise to the God who permits what he hates to accomplish what he loves. It is always a blessing when those who have taught us the word of God have lived themselves in light of it. And that is how it is supposed to be. And so the writer says, remember them. Consider the outcome. Imitate their faith. Then in verse 17, he says something that may have surprised you when I read it. He says, we are to obey and submit to our leaders. Verse 17, obey your leaders, look at it, and submit to them. They're keeping watch over your soul. So he's clearly here describing not government leaders, but spiritual leaders in the church. Uh, And as you hear that language of obey, uh, maybe that just sounds really strange in your ears, particularly as we talk about adults obeying other adults. I mean, sure, in the military, they use that language. And those of us who haven't been in the military still know that, of course, you obey orders or... um, We know that uh, if we refuse to do what our boss says, that is obey in some way, we may find ourselves looking for a new job. There are certainly reasons when you ought to disobey and lose your job. But uh, we also know that to defy a lawful order of a police officer may find us in jail. We're all called to obedience. God would have us obey our spiritual leaders here and submit to them. And no Christian is exempt from that kind of thing. You, you may remember if you were here last March when we had an, a service organizing our church and installing myself as the pastor and our elders, uh, the presbytery came and did that. And one of the vows that elders take is we vow subjection to our brethren in the Lord. We're all under authority. We're all accountable. I mean, I'm not exempt. Leaders in the church are not exempt uh, from these things. So that when the writer here writes, he isn't asking uh, the people to do something that we aren't all commanded to do. Why does he say obey and submit? I mean, doesn't that just seem kind of redundant? Uh, Well, because... um, Because there is a distinction, because it is possible to obey uh, without submitting. It is possible to have a simply external obedience without an internal disposition to yield, but rather internally to rebel while outwardly or externally we obey. In other words, I mean, to do what somebody tells you to do, but in your heart, curse them, dishonor them, resent them. Um, All parents uh, experience this distinction at some level when their kids do what they say while rolling their eyes and grumbling. Kids, your parents did just the same at some point too. Uh, So it's both inward and outward. Now, are there limits to this? Of of course 
there are limits to this. I mean, if an elder came into your home and he said, well, hey, head of the house, you know, you, uh, you need to have a 5 a.m. wake-up call and assemble the family for morning worship every day. Well, you don't have to follow that command. It's out of place as the head of the house. You are responsible for how you manage your home. If an elder uh, is friends with a politician, he, doesn't, or he shouldn't show up in the politician's office and command him on behalf of Christ or the church to vote a specific particular way on a very particular piece of legislation. The, st- the state, like the family, are divine institutions in their own way, and politicians have authority in areas of civil governments. The church can be prophetic about moral issues and spiritual issues, but we don't, we don't know what the right legislative process is to accomplish certain good ends, not with the expertise that hopefully our politicians have or are gaining. Not always the case. And so you, you see this point that, that there are limits on authority, of course, in those ways. And, and likewise, there are limits on authority in, in other ways. I mean, it's, in the home, there are limits on the, the authority of a father who cannot command his child to steal and require that obedience. In fact, the father has exceeded his authority should he do so. And the child is absolutely right to disobey such an unjust uh, command, an immoral command. A father is not an absolute authority, uh, but, but derives authority, delegated authority from God, right? So that the father can't, uh, can't command contrary to his own authority, who is God himself, who says you shall not steal. If the state says, uh, curse Jesus or die, We disobey, and maybe we die, but the state doesn't have the kind of authority delegated by God to command that. They're not an absolute authority. And so also with church leaders. Church leaders uh, give directives, and should they give directives not in submission to the word of God, then our conscience is free from submission at that point. I can't command you to believe that which is untrue, don't believe me, should I do so? We delight when you open your Bible and ask, is this what God is saying in this word? And happy are we to have a dialogue about that. We want you to believe what you believe because you're, you know God is speaking to you in the word. In other words, when they teach us the word of God, we're to receive it, we're to believe on it, we're to act on it in submission to God. And there are governing issues that are wisdom issues. They're not black and white. There are certain things about the way we gather as a society which are common to men and and are to be ordered by the light of nature and Christian prudence. We don't have a Bible verse that says, you must gather Sunday morning at 1030. I mean, if so, we've been disobedient for years, right? Uh, but, of course, it was a wisdom issue decided by the elders in, in an effort to best serve us. And, and neither do we lead, a, as nobody has, a, a rebellion against the decision. You're always free to suggest that a different hour would better serve you and the community as you see it. And the elders would be glad to consider those things. Nobody's raised that issue. I don't want to change the time of worship. But you understand the point. 
There are limits, of course, on this. Uh, but the, the command holds nonetheless. And in fact, it's part of being a church member. It's actually one of the promises. We, when, we, and when we bring people into church membership here at Redeemer, one of the things we promise is that we will submit ourselves to the government and discipline of the church. Uh, listen, when people are baptized, they are brought into the discipleship of the church, the community of God's people, and become accountable to the shepherds in that local church. They're saying, I need Jesus to save me, and I want these people to nurture me, to teach me the word of God, to look after my soul. We all need that kind of help. Even pastors need pastors. All shepherds need to be shepherded. Watch out then for the pride that says, I don't really need this thing. I don't need these people or that ministry. I don't need the church. No, you do. (laughs) You even need leaders. Um, Our souls need watching. We are prone to wander. Lord, we feel it. Prone to leave the God we love. And so one of the things we're saying when we say that we'll, um, in membership, uh, submit ourselves to the government discipline of the church is we're saying something like this, as I always tell people, usually. What I'm saying is... um, If I become a heretic or an adulterer, if I go off the reservation theologically or morally, don't let me walk away from Jesus and his church. Don't let me just say sayonara and goodbye. Come get me. Come find me. Love me enough to chase me down, throw your arm around my my, my shoulder, And rebuke me. Speak the truth in love to me. Call me home. Walk me home. Walk with me through the process of reconciliation and repentance. Pray for me. Don't don't leave me. This is what we're all signing up for when we say that we want the ministry of the church and leaders. These leaders are accountable to God in the way that they do these things. And they must not just simply shrug you off as a hopeless cause. They have no right under God to do so. In fact, he uses the language of accountability. Notice that. Notice he says they keep watch over your souls as those who must give an account. Now, what are they? What is it they're doing? They're keeping watch over your souls. And he perhaps has one of two biblical ideas in mind. One is upon us because it's Christmas. And maybe you're thinking of those shepherds who were out in the fields keeping watch over their flocks by night. That may be the idea. That's an Old New Testament idea. They're, they're preserving, they're guarding, they're protecting, they're keeping the wolves at bay. And he, he might uh, have uh, rather the Old Testament picture of the prophets who spoke of themselves as watchmen who uh, stood on the city walls. Uh, Through the watches of the night, they stayed awake while the others slept, of course, to guard the community from the marauders and invaders. They, in both situations, are are governing uh, for the well-being. They're protecting and defending. They're propagating the truth so that we don't uh, stumble upon error that hurts. These These are the kinds of things we're to do. And we will give it an account to God. 
Notice that language. We will give an account. Um, take, take the two ways of accountability. We do give an account to God. We'll come back to that. We, there's also a mutual accountability in this, of course. And one of the ways you, you, you recognize that is, is the way that he speaks about these leaders. Notice at verse 7 and at verse 17, he speaks in the plural, not in the singular. Remember your leaders, he says, not remember your leader. Obey your leaders, he says, not obey your leader. Uh, it's, not, it's not an unimportant point. In God's church, there are to be multiple persons in leadership responsibility. And that's not understood properly or practiced properly in every place. Right? So you have a situation where in many places there's a kind of cult of personality uh, a, a strong and dominant personality, maybe with exceptional gifts, is kind of the sole leader of everything. And the danger that places everybody in is that if that leader goes astray or that leader sees themselves as the top of the totem pole, they're not to serve but to be served. Uh, there, there are all kinds of abuses of power in that situation. And mutual accountability. Multiple leaders holds that, Lord willing, in check, right? And I love the fact that we are an elder-led Presbyterian church. I'm a Presbyterian minister basically because of this point. I, don't, I never wanted to be a lone ranger because I knew myself well enough to know that that would be terrible for me and others, right? Um, I'm accountable to the elders. They're accountable to one another. As iron sharpens iron, one sharpens another. Ministry isn't one directional. We help each other. We strengthen each other. We speak truth into each other's lives. We, we correct and rebuke one another. Um, we, we, I, preach to the ears of elders who've been examined in sound doctrine, believe it, embrace it, and they can hear, Lord willing, should I go astray and bring whatever needed rebuke or correction. We seek to do in the life of the church certain things subject to the uh, approval of a group of leaders. We're not just all out on our own doing anything and everything we want. We seek the Lord together. We suggest things together. We debate. We seek to persuade. We pray Uh, And then we move forward together because elders, pastors, shepherds aren't to be lords, but to be servants. And mutual accountability uh, helps us be servants. Too often we hear of churches where a pastor goes rogue and destroys the church. And looking back, there were signs along the way, but nobody ever said anything. I don't even have to name the names. You know of those kinds of situations. I simply want to say, we have an open door here to practice Matthew 18 confrontation. If your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault. Nobody is exempt from that. We welcome that. One of the things I love about being Presbyterian is church leaders are accountable, not just within our church, but to the wider regional body of churches. So that should the whole group of elders go sideways, may it never be. And you realize it and you seek correction and they're hard hearted. 
you can actually go outside of our church to the other elders in our region called a presbytery and say, we need help here. Something's not right. And they can literally come in and remove a man or a pastor from office if it came to that. But there's help. I have a friend in another PCA church whose congregation member thought something had been done wrong. And the elder and pastors, of course, didn't. I mean, well, not of course, but they concluded that they hadn't. But the pastor said to him, but listen, I will help you walk through the process of how to go to the presbytery and bring a complaint against me and the elders. I'll help you do that. And then we'll let the presbytery get involved and figure this stuff out. There are layers of human mutual accountability. Part of what the leadership of the church does with the flock. Right? We're none of us exempt. But also there is direct accountability to God himself. One day, pastors and elders and leaders and teachers will stand before the judgment seat of Christ and give an account for how faithful they were in the propagation of the truth and in the watchful care of the souls of people. Uh, My old pastor shared this illustration of a man named John Brown. Now, I've mentioned John Browns to you before, uh, not the John Brown locally uh, or his descendants, but John Brown, this one of Haddington. He was a Presbyterian scholar and theologian in the 19th century. Uh, He's called John Brown of Haddington because there were so many John Browns in Scotland that they had to describe those John Browns by the place that they came from. Haddington is actually where John Knox was born. But uh, this John Brown was a uh, seminary professor and a a shepherd of young pastors and a young ministerial student graduated, got called to a tiny little church and the young man, the the seminary professor, realized was a little bit embarrassed by how small the church was that he was being called to. And so this professor, John Brown, wrote him a letter and here's what he said. I know the vanity of your heart and that you will feel mortified that your congregation is very small in comparison with those of your brethren around you but assure yourself on the word of god uh, on the word of an old man (laughs) i confuse those things he didn't assure yourself on the word of an old man That when you come to give an account of them to the Lord Christ at his judgment seat, you will think that you had enough. You see what he's saying. Look, if you have 34 people or 3,000 people, we will on that day say, Lord, 34 was enough. Lord, 3,000 was enough. We'll have plenty enough to account for. And we're accountable. Now, notice how he goes on. So he says, we are to seek to make their work, that is, these leaders' work, an occasion of joy and not of groaning. In some churches, you see people receive the word, eager to hear the truth and and have the truth shape their hearts. People want to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus. They keep responding with faith and repentance. And in some churches, just the opposite, right? They, they uh, have no regard for the pastors and elders. They aren't interested that much in the word. They miss worship services called by the elders for frivolous reasons and never say boo about it, right? They, 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 uh, they respond to gentle inquiries about how are you doing spiritually with 
Who do you think you are to ask me that? Two very different kinds of reactions. Charles Simeon had that ladder. He, um, while studying, uh, he came to understand the gospel while studying at King's College in Cambridge, and then he was appointed as a minister in 1783. And uh, most of the members of the church where he was called decided to stay home in protest of his evangelical gospel zeal. Simeon tried to start a Sunday evening service to gather some others. And so townspeople came, but the church wardens locked the doors of the church while the people stood waiting in the street. Once Simeon had the doors opened by a locksmith, but it happened again and he backed off and he dropped that service. Didn't want to push things too hard. Then the next thing that happened was the... Those with um, locks on their pews, which sounds like a really strange thing, but people paid for their seats and funded the church in certain ways, and they had, literally had locks where they could open and close their own pew. Uh, the pew holder with the key refused to come and refused to open the pew for others who sought to sit. So Simeon, the pastor, set up seats in the aisles and the nooks and corners of the church with chairs bought at his own expense and the church wardens threw them out into the yard of the church. He was frequently, when he got to preach, heckled in the services and then insulted on the street. What is so amazing is he stayed at that church for 52 years, faithfully preaching God's word and eventually winning over the hearts of the people. Some men in ministry have it rough. And I wanted to share that story with you to say, I do not have it rough at Redeemer. And I am so grateful to the Lord and thankful to you. That doesn't mean that ministry is always easy. Or uh, that you could make the pastor's life easy by saying to yourself, I won't tell him my troubles. I'd hate to make life harder for him. Listen, I and the elders want you to share your troubles with us. To share your burdens. We want to groan inwardly with you. We want, if we can, to make things lighter for you. Uh, We certainly want to take your troubles to the Lord in prayer for you and with you and where we can give Lord willing wise counsel. And it's part of the joy of ministry to share life with you and to walk through hard things with you. The kind of groaning he's describing here isn't the the pains of ministry in that way. It's simply uh, having people who don't really care about the Lord, want to listen to his word, seek the help of the Lord, or want to walk with the Lord. And that becomes very evident in the way that they treat their leaders. We don't want that kind of groaning. That would be painful for us. And it would be no profit to you, is how he closes. Right? Who profits most by the people's willing hearts? Not even the leaders profit most. The people themselves. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Look, nobody wins when leaders have difficult, hard-hearted, disrespectful followers. 
least of all, the followers themselves. A hard heart is to your own disadvantage personally. And I praise the Lord that in almost every way, you are a joy to me as a preacher and as a pastor. It is true, I feel every Sunday like I've given birth. And I wake up Monday morning pregnant again, waiting on a delivery. Moms, talk to me later about how unfair that is. (laughs) And I do groan inwardly that Christ would be formed in us, each of us. And I occasionally grow weary in the work. I, uh, I occasionally have just had it. Usually, almost invariably, it's not because of you, but it's because of me. I, I grow weary of carrying the responsibilities of the work that I feel either ill-equipped for or have done poorly at. Or I have defaulted to an ungodly messianic complex which thinks that somehow... You know, all will be well if Ted just does his job right, instead of all will be well as we rest in Jesus' arms. This is a sin that all ministers are tempted to, but you are a joy. I have never been happier in ministry in my entire life since I started in full-time vocational ministry the day I finished college. I just had this discussion with somebody. The day I took two incompletes, I didn't quite finish college until I actually later finished it. I've never had a better job. I love what I do. I've never felt more at home in ministry. I've never had a, a more fabulous experience of standing back and seeing the marvelous grace of God display the glory and power of God in the gospel and build something. It's awesome. I praise the Lord, and I thank you for partnering with us in this. In human thinking, or in the thinking of human leaders, let me say it this way, past, present, or future, as we think of them, don't forget verse 8. Jesus, he says, is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He, at the end of every day and all through, is our great leader and teacher and shepherd and elder and deacon and savior and friend. Human leadership comes and goes, but the leadership of the church never quits, is always faithful. Let our hopes be in him. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus. He's the savior of us all, of sinful leaders and sinful sheep. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this, your idea of building a visible church on earth that we might one day walk with the whole bride in the glory to come. By the grace of Jesus, be our Messiah and forgive the failures of all who lead, including this one. And more and more, raise up from among us, we pray, godly leaders for your glory to serve you here and 
elsewhere. In Jesus' name, I ask. Amen. Let's stand and pray. Praise the Lord in song.